Have a listen to how Psalm 12 ends. Because the poor are plundered and the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will protect them from those who malign them. And the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver purified in a crucible, like gold refined seven times. You, Lord, will keep the needy safe and will protect us forever from the wicked who freely strut about when what is vile is honoured by the human race. There are lots of psalms that sound like this, that promise God's protection, that he is a refuge and shelter for his people. Do you believe this? Have you experienced this in your life? As you look around the world, is this what you see, that God is protecting and keeping his people safe? Or do you hear stories of Christians persecuted, brought before the courts or tried by the media for discrimination, for being on the wrong side of history and losing? Do you hear stories of Christians persecuted, jailed, tortured, executed, church-owned properties burnt to the ground in countries like Afghanistan, Iran and India? In natural disasters and wars, do you hear stories of Christians sharing in the same fate and suffering as their neighbours? Is the promise of Psalm 12 true or is it just wishful thinking? We're at the tail end of the book of Acts, Luke's historical record of everything Jesus continued to do after he'd been raised from the dead. And in many ways, the book of Acts ends on a downward slope. Unnecessary imprisonment, unjust trials, murderous plots, torture, storms and shipwrecks. It raises the question of whether God's in control. What kind of protection does he offer? Is it all worth it? What should you and I expect as followers of Jesus? Well, we know what Paul expected as he arrived in Jerusalem. Uh, Back when he was in Miletus speaking with the Ephesian elders, uh, this is what he said. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardship are facing me. And prison and hardship kicks in really quickly. As we heard last week, Paul agreed, maybe as a concession, he agreed to help pay for the vows of four Jewish believers. But even before the rituals for their vows are finished, before the end of that first week in Jerusalem, trouble finds Paul. It starts in Acts 21, verse 27. So verse 27, have a look at there. Uh, Some Jewish people from Asia, it probably means that they're from Ephesus. They see Paul near the temple and are furious. That had enough of him in Ephesus and he's got the gall to show his face in Jerusalem. That had enough of his teaching about Jesus. That had enough of the good news of salvation through faith alone. That had enough of his welcome of Gentiles into God's people. 
and they used this last bit to rile up a mob. They'd seen Paul hanging out with non-Jewish believers, with Greeks. And now they see him in the temple courts, their precious holy sanctuary, and they've assumed that somehow Paul has snuck in Greeks into the temple, which to them, to these Asian Jews, this is a mockery of God's law. So have a look at verse 27, Acts 21:27. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us! This is the man! who teaches everyone, everywhere, against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. Now, there's barely a skerrick of truth in their accusations. I don't think they're lying. I think they're genuinely mistaken. Paul hadn't brought any Greeks into the temple. And there's irony here. Last week we heard how Paul has bent over backwards for the law. He's put himself under the law for the sake of those who see themselves as under the law. He's made this concession for the unity in the Christian movement. Now, he did it for the sake of Christians, not for Orthodox Jews, but either way, it hasn't helped. A riot is stirred up. And do you notice Paul is all alone? Not one of the thousands of Judean Christians, not one of the thousands who were zealous for the law, not one of them stood with their brother Paul. Instead, he's alone facing a furious mob until he's arrested and dragged into the barracks for his own protection. And things keep going downhill. Uh, The next thing happens on the steps of the barracks. Paul's given an opportunity to address the mob, and the moment he starts speaking, silence. Have a look at chapter 22, which is what Marge just read to us. Chapter 22, starting at verse 1. Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defence. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. The crowds shocked to hear him speak in their language with their accent. Most of them didn't know why they were rioting. They didn't know what they were angry about. Maybe they saw their friends getting angry and decided, well, if my mate's angry, I need to get angry too. Away with this fellow. Outrage is contagious. Outrage is contagious. It's why the media, whether it's social media or broadcast media, media loves controversy. Outrage is contagious. And so if they can get people worked up, if they can make people angry, that gets eyeballs, that sells papers. So a quick aside, brothers and sisters, we must not get sucked in by this. God calls us to get rid of anger 
and rage, slander and malice, and instead to be kind, compassionate and forgiving. That's Ephesians 4.31. Do not allow the rage of the mob to control you. But back to Acts. Uh, For a moment, the crowd is quiet and, and gives Paul an opportunity to speak. And not really to defend himself, but to proclaim Christ. He starts by telling his story. I was once like you, controlled, obsessed by rage at the followers of Jesus. Paul was the most zealous of all Jews, holier than all of thou, proven by his hatred for believers in Jesus. But it all changed when Jesus met him, when he learned Jesus is alive. So jump down to verse 6. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. If Jesus is alive, risen, reigning and ruling, everything changes. Verse 10. What shall I do, Lord? I asked, Paul asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, The God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized and wash your sins away, calling on his name. Uh, Do you see what Paul's doing here? In part, he is defending himself. Followers of Jesus are not opposed to the law. Ananias was a godly Jew. Jesus is the fulfillment of all God's promises. Jesus is the righteous one their ancestors had longed for. Paul is, in one sense, defending himself, but even more, he's proclaiming Christ, that Jesus is risen and reigning, that in his name, sins can be washed away. Paul is much more interested in proclaiming Christ than protecting himself. And you see this as his speech finishes. Then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him, he's not fit to live. The mention of Gentiles riles them up again. That's what got them started, thinking Greeks had come into their temple But Paul mentions Christ's command to go to the whole world, to go to the Gentiles, because that's God's heart in the gospel. Grace poured out, not just on Jews, but to all nations, all races. But in the mind of the mob, in saying this, Paul hasn't just 
defiled the physical temple, he's defiled the people of God as well, saying that those Gentiles out there are just as welcome into God's people as Jews. It infuriates them. And so once again in their rage, the mob sets themselves on Paul. The next day, it happens again. Uh, Paul is brought before the Sanhedrin, the most powerful Jewish court. This is the group who conspired to have Jesus crucified decades earlier. Paul is brought before them and begins by declaring his innocence, which offends the high priest. So have a look at chapter 23. Uh, This is chapter 23 and verse 1. Twenty-three, verse one. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, "My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day." At this, the high priest Ananias, different from the other Ananias, high priest Ananias, ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, "God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law." Yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, How dare you insult God's high priest? Paul replied, Brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest. For it is written, Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. In the mind of the high priest, Paul was anything but innocent. As a follower of Jesus, he's a blasphemer, a heretic. His claim to a a clear conscience is a lie, an insult to God. But Paul speaks more truly than anyone. Through faith in Jesus, his sins have been washed away. Even though he approved of murder, persecuted innocent Christians, Paul has a clear conscience before God. In verse 6, He gets to the point. This is the real question. Uh, The real question for the Jewish authorities to decide is resurrection. Is it possible God raised Jesus from the dead? Verse 6. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead, which gets them arguing amongst themselves. This is a stroke of brilliance. Not not that he's just playing into their own divisions and theology and getting the attention of himself, but in the end, he actually gets the Pharisees to defend Jesus. Verse 9, there was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if, what if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? Against the Sadducees, who was a a Jewish group, Orthodox Jews, but who denied almost all supernatural things, miracles, angels, resurrection, eternity, the Pharisees end up arguing that, well, the, the resurrection of Jesus is at least possible. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees are against each other. They're against Paul. Once again, the debate turns violent and Paul 
gets out of there. Over the course of two days, three times Paul has faced a murderous mob. Uh, The mob at the temple, uh, the mob on the barrack steps, the Sanhedrin itself descending into riot. How would you feel after two days like that? Well, that night, Jesus shows up. Not a prophet, not a vision, not an angel, but Christ himself a second time appears to Paul. Uh, This time not in blinding light, but as a personal comforting presence. Verse 11, the following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. What an encouragement. Though, maybe Paul hoped for an earthquake or an angelic escort out of jail. That's not the hope and the help Jesus gives this time. He says, look, Paul, I'm going to keep you safe in Jerusalem, but you're going to continue in jail. It's going to be continuing trials. He says, just as you testified in Jerusalem, you're going to testify in Rome. That's still courtroom language. You don't testify in court unless you are stuck in prison. And so although Jesus promises protection... Which, which would have been encouraging, you know, three murderous mobs in two days. He's also saying, Paul, suffering's gonna continue. And that's exactly what happens. The next morning, uh, after the mess in the Sanhedrin, some zealous Jews vow to get rid of Paul once and for all. Uh, their plan is to ambush him when he is next brought before the Sanhedrin. Uh, but in Paul's sovereignty, the plot is foiled. You can have a look at this later. Paul's nephew gets wind of it in verse 16. He lets Paul know. Paul informs the Roman authorities who provide Paul with military escort to Caesarea. So have a look at verse 23, Acts 23, 23. Then he, uh, that's the Roman tribune, the high-ranking Roman soldier, called two of his centurions and ordered them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide horses for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. So we've seen over three or four days, four phases of persecution. The riotous mob at the temple, the mob stirred up again on the steps of the barracks, the Sanhedrin descending into chaos, and now a plot against Paul's life. And yet, at each of these phases, God continues to provide protection. I've hinted at the protection on the way through, but let's quickly look at it now. Ironically, throughout this persecution in Jerusalem, God uses... God uses Roman soldiers to protect Paul. They should be the enemies, but God uses them, the Roman soldiers, as agents of his protection. 
So at the, the temple, back in chapter 21, verse 32, 21, 32, as the rob riots and begins beating up Paul, Roman soldiers rush in, seize Paul and drag him away. Then, after Paul on the barrack steps tells his story of meeting the risen Lord Jesus and how Jesus has washed away his sin, once again the soldiers drag Paul away from the murderous mob. And when the Sanhedrin descends to a riot, again Roman soldiers come and rescue Paul. Where are these thousands of Judean Christians? I don't know, but the Roman soldiers are used by God. There are two other moments of protection that really stand out. One's at the end of chapter 22, after the mob riots on the steps of the bank, of the barracks. The Roman centurion wants to know, well, hang on. What's gone wrong here? I've now had two riots on my hands in a matter of just a couple of hours. How on earth have I allowed that to happen? It sounds like this Roman centurion didn't speak Aramaic, so he didn't understand what Paul had said. Maybe he thought Paul had said something deliberately uh, to incite the riot. And so he does what any good centurion would do. He plans to whip the information out of Paul. A good bit of torture to get yourself the truth. But as Paul is stretched out, his his back bared for the whip, he is rescued, this time by his Roman citizenship. So let's read from verse 23. This is Acts 22, verse 23. As they, the Jewish mob, were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, sounds to me like like horses, you know, snorting, you know, snorting their noses and and pounding at the at the ground. The commander ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do? He asked. This man is a Roman citizen. Uh, The law must have been that Soldiers can torture whoever they like. I mean, you're a Roman soldier. It's, it's one of your privileges, unless they're a Roman citizen. Uh, citizens couldn't be tortured unless found guilty of a crime and then go for your life. Now, what Paul's doing here, he's not asserting his rights as a Roman citizen. He's defending his innocence. Uh, in our modern mindset, we read what Paul does here. We are so obsessed with rights. I've got the right to do this. You're impinging on my freedoms. You've got no right. But in the ancient world, to argue your innocence, one of the ways you did that is to show your accuser's guilt. And you notice that all the way through Paul's trial with the Sanhedrin. He gets slapped straight away. You're guilty, not me. Here, as a follower of the Lord Jesus, he shows once again, I'm an innocent man, innocent of all charges by showing the guilt of even the Roman establishment. They're breaking their own laws. You're the guilty ones, not me. It's not about rights. It's about innocence. It's not about rights. It's about standing out, shining out, as a godly man. And so Paul is innocent of all charges. 
He's protected by God from torture by the Romans. Uh, The final way God protects Paul, uh, we heard it before, somehow his nephew unravels a conspiracy and instead of Paul being ambushed and murdered, he's transported to Caesarea with full military procession. Once again, the Romans to the rescue. And through the persecution of a mob in the Sanhedrin, through the threat of torture by Roman soldiers, God protects Paul. He experiences the kind of protection we read about in Psalm 12, God keeping safe and protecting his people. Do you believe God will do this for you? As we answer this, we've got to pay attention to the context, uh, the context of Psalm 12 and the context of how God protects Paul. God didn't protect Paul by the moment he walks into the temple. Well, everyone bows the knee to Jesus and celebrates Paul as a faithful apostle of Christ. No, God's protection is in the midst of suffering and persecution. It's actually the pattern of Psalm 12. Who does God keep safe? The needy. If you're not needy, you don't need to be kept safe. Who does he protect? People who are threatened by the wicked, who strut about freely. You don't need God's protection unless there is a threat. It is protection in the midst of persecution and suffering. And this is because the Christian life is cross-shaped. It's cruciform. God protects because there is persecution. Life comes through death. Resurrection through the cross. Victory through suffering. Sometimes God's protection means you live to face another trial. That's what Jesus promised Paul. Just as you have testified in Jerusalem, so you will in Rome. But even in the book of Acts, God's plan doesn't always mean rescue from persecution. Stephen is killed by a murderous mob. John, the son of Zebedee, is put to death by Herod's sword. God does and can protect But the real question is, where are we looking for protection? As Paul said to the Sanhedrin, he's on trial because of hope, because of hope of the resurrection. His hope isn't that he'll be delivered from the riotous mob or from prison. Jesus' promised protection is for eternity, that those who acknowledge Jesus, who trust in him, who've had their sins washed away through faith in him, the promised protection is for eternity. When Paul was almost at the end of his life, he wrote some final words to Timothy, his protege. And he makes sure Timothy knows what he's in for what the Christian life will be like, why it's worth sticking with Jesus through suffering and persecution. And Paul says, and we need to hear this too, Paul says it's worth it because Christ is our only hope of salvation. 2 Timothy 3, it's up on the screen. Paul's writing to Timothy, you, however, 
know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium and Lystra? You could also include Jerusalem. Are the persecutions I endured? Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learnt and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learnt it and from how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Is God able to protect? Yes. But we need to remember our hope is in resurrection. In this life, Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We will struggle and suffer. But since Jesus is risen and reigning, we can be sure of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you because Jesus is the risen and reigning Saviour. We thank you that through faith in his name, sin is washed away and we can have a clear conscience before you. Please hold us fast in the sure hope of resurrection. Help us be ready for suffering and persecution. Encourage and strengthen us as you did, Paul. Hold us fast, whether you provide rescue in this life or not. Hold us fast, knowing that in Christ you will bring us home. Amen.